Good afternoon. It's Friday the 21st of January 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we're going to get straight on with, uh, well, Russia, Ukraine. Uh, it's starting to really kick off. Yeah, the war drums are beating pretty, pretty hard if you're uh, paying attention to what uh, the media is trying to make us believe right now. Yeah. So. I'm not sure if that's what people want, uh, but that's definitely what the media and the establishment are pushing right now. So uh, Joe Biden gave his first uh, press conference in, uh, I think, a year, first proper press conference. So uh, it's a one-year anniversary from his inauguration. So he's one year into his first term here. Uh, and so I guess it's going to be the, if you do four years of this president, one press conference per year. Yeah, that's so about right, isn't it? <laughs> that's the clip. So he kind of mumbled and stumbled his way through it. There were some softball questions, uh, but the bulk of the bulk, you know, they weren't concerned about the U.S. southern border, the press. Everyone wanted to know about Ukraine and Russia's border. Right. That was uh, the bulk of, I think, the questions, definitely on, on foreign policy. Are you going to stop Putin from uh, invading Ukraine? So this is what most of it was. Let's take a look at uh, some of these questions. So this is the first one. Now, it, it, is the U.S. going to uh, intervene? Is NATO going to intervene? They're certainly making noises like they're going to, quote, support mm. uh, Ukraine should the Russians invade. Are the Russians even going to invade? We'll get into that in a minute and give you some answers. Let's go ahead and listen to this first bit from the press conference, and we'll break this down for everybody. David, I'm not so sure he has uh, is certain what he's going to do. My guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And by the way, I've indicated to him the two things he said to me that he wants, guarantees of. One is Ukraine will never be part of NATO. And two, that NATO or the, there will not be strategic weapons stationed in Ukraine. We can work out something on the second piece, pretending what he does along the Russian line as well, the Russian border in the European area of Russia. On the first piece, we have a number of treaties internationally and in Europe that suggest that you get to choose who you want to be with. But the likelihood that Ukraine is going to join NATO in the near term is not very likely based on much more work they have to do in terms of democracy and a few other things going on and whether or not the major allies in the West would vote to bring Ukraine in right now. So there's room to work if he wants to do that. But I think, as usual, he's going to... Well, I probably shouldn't go any further, but I think it will hurt him badly. Right. So, so what did you pick up from that? Well, the, the pause at the end was very telling. He was already deciding that he was saying too much. Um, but uh, what's going on with Biden at the moment? Is, he, is, is, he, is there a good cop, bad cop thing going on between him and the State Department? Uh, I'm not sure. I think, I think Biden generally doesn't want to go to war with Russia, probably. Certainly at his age. I don't know if he could take the excitement of it all. Uh, but also, you know, maybe he doesn't want to have that be his legacy, that he's the one who started uh, a major conflict in Europe. Yeah or started World War III, right. uh, not only that, who knows what compromising material there might be on uh, his son Hunter for all the uh, escapades in Ukraine over the years with Burisma. So who knows what's going on behind the scenes there. But mm -hmm. the media attacked Biden 
roundly, both sides, left and right. Fox. And so did Zelensky as well. He, he had some words to say about Biden's uh, not being quite as vociferous about it as, as certain people would have liked. Yeah, everybody rounded in on him. So yeah. this was interesting. This is a bipartisan effort to basically attack him for not being hawkish enough, mm. not being warmongering enough. So he'll get his talking to by his advisors and he'll probably come out and in, in, in a more of a hard stance. But that would be, this could be the undoing of Joe Biden finally, as right. he's not hawkish enough. So as we were commenting before the show, not much difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden at the end of the day, right? Right. On Russia. Right. So let's look at what's really going on though. Let's take a look at this here. And this, we're, we've got a paradigm going here. We've got Russia on one side. We've got the U.S. and Britain and NATO and Ukraine on the other. Notice how I didn't include any other flags, Mike, because those are the only ones at the end matter. of the day that really matter. So who's involved here? The war drums are beating pretty hard. Putin is there on your left-hand side. And there's Joe weighing in here. And here's mini-me coming up. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the new actor turned president of Ukraine. Yes, he was on a sitcom playing a president just a couple of years ago, and now he's actually president. Work that one out. So I'm calling this Tonkin 2.0, because this is the situation we're in right now. We're going to help you sort of translate what you're hearing in terms of rhetoric. So when you hear this, when US, UK leading the chance uh, with NATO, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Now, do Russia have any plans to invade Ukraine? Is it in their interest? to invade Ukraine? Uh, Probably not. I don't think so. Let's translate that for you. Now, here we're getting into 5D chess. Translation, NATO plans to draw Russia into yeah. Eastern Ukraine to trigger all of the things that we'll show you uh, in a moment here. So that's Tonkin uh, 2.0. Now let's just look at another aspect of this here. Uh, pardon me, let's repeat. So what are the actual US-UK objectives here? What are they really after? And here's what they're after. This is the number one target. Believe it or not, it might not even be Russia. This is the number one target. Pull Germany away from Russia. Historically, this is, all, this is going to be a, a major objective, definitely of, of Britain, historically, and, and the Western powers. They do not want to see a good trade, good relations between Germany and Russia. They don't want that part of Europe facing eastward for a number of reasons. So this is why they're really rounding in on Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor of Germany, trying to make him more hawkish because Angela Merkel's position, if you remember, was a, a detente, was her policy. She started Nord Stream 2 with Putin. Okay, notice how she exited out of the scene recently and now you're seeing all the war talk all of a sudden. So the question is, uh, did she exit out of the scene uh or was she pushed or was it, so in other words, has the West waited for her to go because it was her time or was she really encouraged to, to it was time to move aside? It's, it's hard to tell. It yeah. could be either. It yeah. could be either. So that's what we're looking at here. So actual objective here is to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Okay. That's the real objective by, I think, by ratcheting up tensions in Ukraine. And the U.S. wants to sell its liquefied natural gas to Germany. So cut off the Russian gas, which is cheap and uh, has uh, unlimited supply, basically. And they can do long-term fixed contracts on prices that would stabilize the energy prices in Europe. No, the U.S. wants to sell for twice the price bottled LNG over by shipping by boat 
and and all fracked as well. So so uh, that the 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 fracking industry in the United States has had rejuvenation with these high gas prices in the last few weeks and months. Yeah, not exactly sustainable, is it? Someone call Greta and have her talk to Biden about that one and break the stalemate in Donbass. Look, nothing new has happened in Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine separated from Western Ukraine. It's been a stalemate for seven years. The West and NATO are doing this right now. I'm telling you, my opinion is they want to break the stalemate. They want something to change. Now, what is that something going to be? It could be a Gulf of Tonkin 2.0 event. It could be a false flag. It could be an MH17 style event. Who knows? They've already set up the script right now. Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Pay close attention. Okay, here's another one. More sanctions on Russia. They want to cut them off from the international monetary system, cancel their SWIFT payment clearance uh, access uh, to US dollar transactions. That's also a major objective here and disrupt China's Belt and Road. So that, and that includes disrupting Germany's participation yes. in the Belt and Road. And that's the most important part because who's the number one economic power and manufacturer in, in the Europe. whole, in Europe? It's Germany. Germany can service the Belt and Road market and service Western Europe and the US. That's how powerful Germany's industrial base mm. is. Okay, so they want to put an end to that. So we saw this piece come up in the Times. This is serious. British anti-tank weapons are being sent to defend Ukraine from Russia. Now the question is, are these actual defensive weapons with a range of 800 meters taking out tanks? You have to be in close proximity, don't you, to fire off one of these. So are we really talking about defensive strategy here? Or are we talking about something else? Good question. We may come on to a little bit of that later on. So, so who's weighing in on this? Tobias Elwood, chairman of the Defense Select Committee, said that President Putin is now simply waiting for the weather, uh, waiting for a break in the weather to invade. Work that one out. He's, he's waiting for a winter. Basically, that a break in the weather means a snowstorm, apparently, right? Well, no, a break in the weather. So, so good weather coming along because so, you need good weather to prosecute a war. So, so well, no, it, no, on the soft ground in Ukraine, uh, frozen, uh, frozen uh, underfoot land is better for tanks. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're, I think they're all, they're also intimating that actually it's waiting for a major harsh snow blizzard or something like that. Okay. This. So this this might be the thing. Here's Tobias Elwood, MP, chairman of the Defense Committee. This is what he's saying. I hope other NATO countries quickly will follow our lead before the temperature drops and the freezing conditions make an invasion operationally possible. Says Elwood. And here is what I'm going to show now is the worrying part. This is what he said after that. We should brace ourselves. There's now a countdown to war. So he's talking about it like it's a fait accompli. Um, so, so look, we've got to remember uh, what Tobias Elwood is. Um, he's obviously chairman of the Select Committee. He's obviously an MP, backbench MP, but he's chairman of the, the Defence Select Committee. But he's also a reservist in 77 Brigade, and he has been pushing uh, the anti-Russia narrative for how long? A decade, at least. Uh, pretty close ties to what was called Integrity Initiative. Um, and so uh, he was involved in all that. He's been pushing this anti-Russian propaganda for a long time. And so it's, I, I believe he's absolutely enthusiastic for a war with Russia of some kind. Yeah, and you also have to think, who's behind some of these people? Well, you've also got arms manufacturers. And this sort of stuff is just a showcase 
for arms sales. They've got brimstone missiles going in there. They've got these new anti-tank, the, the British equivalent of the Javelin uh, missile system and the U.S. tow missile system. This is what they've got going in there. So it's kind of like showing it off on the global market. You know, it's n it might not make that much of a difference in terms of if the war did break out. But so in, in that sense, it's a little bit encouraging that some of these are some of the tactics we've seen in the past. So we're hoping that it will, you know, maybe hopefully it's not as serious yes. as, as we all fear. But but uh, but so what, what? who is our foreign secretary oh, in this Britain? Is a, this is a good uh, question. No one's seen uh, him well, or her. Who is it? Well, it's Liz Truss. So let's get her on screen here. And the reason she hasn't been seen the last few days is because she's in Australia. Ah. She's in Australia and she was giving a speech to the Lowy Institute, <clears throat> and uh, that's named after the Australian-Israeli businessman that set it up. Um, and so she was talking about building a global network of liberty. Really? Yes. Uh, and this, uh, that was the title of her address. But let's, uh, let's just listen to a little bit of uh, video from this, uh, this speech that she gave. The Kremlin haven't learnt the lessons of history. They dream of recreating the Soviet Union or a kind of greater Russia, carving up territory based on ethnicity and language. They claim they want stability while they work to threaten and destabilize others. We know what lies down that path and the terrible toll in lives lost and human suffering it brings. That's why we urge President Putin to desist and step back from Ukraine before he makes a massive strategic mistake. Ukraine is a proud country with a long history. They have known invading forces before, from the Mongols to the Tatars. They suffered through the state-sponsored famine. Their resilience runs deep. If they have to, Ukrainians will fight to defend their country. Invasion will only lead to a quagmire as we know from the Soviet-Afghan war or the conflict in Chechnya. So if you want to see, if you can put up with it, you want to see the whole speech, it's available on the, uh, uh, the Lowy uh, Institute's uh, YouTube channel. Um, but so you mentioned Belt and Road, Patrick. Um, she was, she's also uh, been at the first meeting of the AUKUS uh, Defence Ministers, uh, sorry, AUKUS Foreign Ministers meeting called AUKMIN. Uh, now, you know, AUKUS is this, uh, this UK, US, Australia defence pact. Um, and so what they're saying is that uh, UK and Australian ministers concluded vital defence and security talks uh, today, actually, because obviously time zone differences and so on. Uh, and uh, the, the discussions folks focused on key geopolitical challenges, including concerns around the situation in Ukraine. I'm not quite sure what Australia, uh, you know, it, it's a close neighbour of Ukraine, as you, as you can tell. So... Obviously, Australia would be very concerned about what's going on in Ukraine. They're probably concerned because there's a high uh, rate of unvaccinated people in Ukraine. So you, you better mobilize the troops to maybe get them vaxxed. Who knows? Yes. With Australia, you never know. Yes. But of course, they're also talking about Indo-Pacific region, the South China Sea, and of course, China. And AUKUS is really the, about China um, and the Belt and Road. So so again, we've got this, this narrative building up. Um, we've got our two enemies, which we're attempting to, okay, you're saying that, there, uh, that there's a clear effort to draw Russia into Ukraine. There's also a clear effort, I think, to push Russia towards China in terms, in terms of their defense relationship. 
uh, we've got to build this big nasty enemy because of course if we've got a big nasty enemy we've got a burgeoning defense uh, industry yeah we do and uh, certain people are more relevant than than not in in that sort of setup so in Liz Trust she's very impressive she makes a Theresa May look really strong and stable. Cool. Yeah. So great work there. So let's go back to uh, looking at the actual objectives here. Uh, the war drums are beating. What are the actual objectives here? And as you said, Mike, it's about this, keeping NATO relevant. So we need to balkanize these regions. We need to uh, polarize the region. We need a new Cold War, maybe even a hot war keeping NATO relevant. Otherwise, what happens to NATO? Well, it sort of withers away and dies. As it has been. Uh, suddenly it's rejuvenated, but it has been withering away for quite a number of years. People start asking yeah. questions. Why are we spending all those billions of dollars on what and yeah. for who? Yeah. That's the question. So they're doing it right now. And here's the other one, arms sales, as we said. No surprise there. And this is a, a little bit of spite here, but revenge over Crimea. They are seething over the fact that Crimea reunited with Russia and they constantly tell the public that Putin invaded Crimea and annexed it. Mm. Well, the, the military in Russia was already there in Sevastopol, so they can't invade themselves. Uh, and Crimea wasn't annexed, it was reunited in much the same way and in a similar time frame that East Germany reunited with West Germany to become Germany because as people who study history know, uh, Crimea was separated from Russia. Uh, because of uh, something with Nikita Khrushchev uh, in 1954, and he gave it to the Ukraine to curry favor with the, the as the natives were getting restless uh, during the Soviet satellite days. So it reunited, and they did a referendum, 95%. And by the way, uh, according to international law, a number of international law scholars, um, it, what happened in Crimea is in line with international law. Why were there no outcries at the United Nations? How come countries didn't get together and decry this great injustice? Mm. Well, because pretty much it was in line with international law. So who, who can really argue with that? So going back here, and here's the other one, Mike. Media and a political distraction from COVID and vaccine narrative meltdown. This is always going to be on the table, this, this, this uh, situation with Russia. But when do they press the button? Now is an opportune time to press the button. You've got general strikes in France leading NATO country. Mm. You've got a record unpopularity uh, polls in the U.S. with the U.S. president. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson isn't exactly uh, bringing home the adulation right now, is right. he? So these governments, uh, leading NATO states, Canada, are at record low popularity levels. So who knows, what, what do they need to sort of spice things up a bit? We'll continue on this, and here we go. Uh, a new war crisis to boost unpopular failing governments in the U.S. UK, France, and Canada. So now the concerning thing in, is here, and the reason people should be worried is you do have somebody in the White House that is not exactly playing with a full deck, mm -hmm. okay? He is definitely past his golden years. He should be retired. But like Anthony Fauci and so many other people, he's still around and still running things. So Joe Biden's got a different idea of what NATO is and what Article 5 is, the Article 5 treaty. Let's listen to what Joe Biden's version of Article 5 NATO treaty sounds like we've got this video from the press conference. Let's listen to this. Like you were um, offering some way out here, some off-ramp, and it sounds like what it is is at least an informal assurance that NATO is not going to uh, take in Ukraine 
any time in the next few decades. And it sounds like you're saying we would never put nuclear weapons there. He also wants us to move all of our nuclear weapons out of Europe and not have troops rotating through the old Soviet bloc. Do you think there's space for that there? No, well? no, there's not space for that. We won't permanently station, but the idea we're not going to, we're going to actually increase troop presence in Poland and Romania, et cetera, if in fact he moves. Because we have a sacred obligation in Article 5 to defend those countries. They are part of NATO. We don't have that obligation relative to Ukraine, although we have great concern about what happens in Ukraine. Okay, you hear what he said. We have a sacred obligation to defend our partners in NATO Article 5. Yes. Okay? That's not what Article 5 says. Article 5 is if a member is attacked, that the other members will come to their defense. It's not about bolstering up and, and defending and putting in missiles and taking offensive or any kind of uh, position in terms of these countries that are on the sort of the fringe of, of Russia, like Poland. So let's just take a look at what Article 5 says here with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. That's Article 5. No NATO member has ever attacked uh, during the Cold War. It never had to use its military forces, the first one, and the only time uh, a NATO member was attacked and it was invoked was September 11th, 9-11. And that was quite dubious as well. Okay? Yeah. Because they attributed it to a state actor, yes. uh, to Afghanistan. And Afghanistan didn't actually attack uh, the U.S. on 9-11. You can debate about who did it and why. That's another discussion. Um, but here's where it gets dangerous. And so, by the way, this is from NATO's website. That's not what Joe Biden is saying. Right. So he's making up his own interpretation. The British officials are doing the same thing. The press does the same thing. All the boffins yeah. in the foreign policy blob do it too. Remember rapid response mechanism? That they've got a common narrative. All the G7 companies, countries signed up to that co common narrative. Companies, Freudian slip. Absolutely, Freudian slip, <laughs> yes. So you're right, common narrative. So everyone's got to be singing from the same hymn sheet. This is where it gets dangerous, Mike. Re-examining NATO's Article 5, NATO's collective defense in times of cyber threats. So a, quote, Russian hack or an accused Russian hack could start a cyber war. Okay, this is the, this is the problem we're getting into. This is what historians called entangling alliances that led to some disasters like World War I. Okay, so this is serious stuff, and this is the reason why NATO is potentially a major hindrance, uh, because it, it's all fine in your positioning for your contracts and everyone's getting rich and trying to rape and pillage economies like the Ukraine and using the people as cannon fodder. But then if things progress past a certain point where things are getting a little bit too tenuous and you've got nuclear powers involved, then who knows? Who, who knows what could trigger what? what? And this is the danger of it. And this is why we're uh, trying to, to lay this out for everybody today. So they understand that we are not being told the truth by our elected officials in the West. They don't even understand what NATO is. They really probably has sc any scant idea of why it was founded and if it's still relevant today. Right. So. Yeah, right. Well, look, uh, let's come on to Ben Wallace then, because last, uh, in the last few days he wrote an article. Now, I'm not aware that the article was published uh, in any mainstream news outlets, uh, but I just wanted to take some quotes from it and really sort of challenge some of the things that he said. So he began by saying, I've lost count of how many times recently I've had to explain the meaning of the English term 
straw man to my European allies. Uh, that is because the best living, breathing straw man at the moment is the Kremlin's claim to be under threat from NATO. So, but Wallace is absolutely clear about this. The Kremlin's claim to be under threat from NATO is fake, false claim. Uh, an examination of the facts rapidly puts a match uh, to the allegations against NATO. First, that NATO is at its core, or sorry, first, NATO is at its core defensive in nature. So this is his claim. NATO is defensive, defensive. And of course, Article 5 is the, is the claim. But strangely enough, today, uh, NATO is making that uh, claim as well. NATO is a defensive alliance. Our deployments are proportionate and in line with international commitments. Uh, in 2016, we enhanced our forward presence. We'll come on to that in a second. But I just want to challenge this somewhat. Uh, ben Wallace claims it's defensive in one article, but in a speech uh, a couple of years ago, he said, in the autumn, the chief of the defense staff set out plans for how we will operate militarily through the integrated operating concept. Uh, so th this was uh, Ben Wallace a couple of years ago. Let's just remind ourselves what the integrated operating concept is. Uh, the central idea of the integrated operating concept is offensive rather than defensive. So they can claim defensive with respect to NATO all they like, but the truth is that uh, national at a national level, there's been a change in orientation towards offensive. And, you know, you talked about cyber a second ago. They are, uh, the, the, the language from, from the, uh, the, the UK's military establishment is, we want to maintain conflict at a level which is below, you know, what might lead to a kinetic war is how they describe it. So offensive cyber attacks on Russia and on China, offensive attacks in the, main, in, in the information war, and eventually offensive attacks militarily as well, but trying to keep them at a certain level. This is a dangerous game to be playing. So that's straw man number one from Ben Wallace, that NATO is a, is a defensive alliance. Yes. That's his straw man number one, right? Correct. So here's his straw man number two. Uh, he went on to say, second, former Soviet states have not ex been expanded into by NATO, but joined at their own request. Well, is that true? I don't think it is. And in fact, if we look at the history of it, so here's from the National Security Archive, if you want to have a look at NATO expansion, what Gorbachev heard, uh, and this is, it's, it's talking about in the subhead there, declassified documents show security assurances against NATO expansion to Soviet leaders, leaders from Baker, Bush, Genscher, Cole, Gates, Mitterrand, uh, Thatcher, Heard, Major and Werner. Uh, Slavic Studies panel addresses who promised what to whom on NATO expansion. And they say, the first concrete assurances by Western leaders on NATO began in January the 31st, 1990, when West German Foreign Minister Genscher opened the bidding uh, with a major public speech in Bavaria on German unification. The US Embassy in Bonn informed Washington uh, that Genscher made clear that the changes in Eastern Europe and the German unification process must not lead to an impairment of Soviet security threats uh, therefore, NATO should rule out an expansion of territory towards the east. Uh, and then later on in the article, it says, not once but three times, James Baker tried out the not one inch eastward formula on Gorbachev in the February 9th, 1990 meeting. He agreed with Gorbachev's statement in response to the assurances that NATO expansion is unacceptable. Uh, Baker assured Gorbachev that neither the president nor I intend to extract any unilateral advantages from the processes that are taking place around German unification, that is. 
and that the uh, U.S. understood that not only for the Soviet Union, but for other Eastern countries as well, it's important to have guarantees that if the United States keeps its presence in Germany within the framework of NATO, not an inch of NATO's present military jurisdiction would spread in an Eastern direction. These promises were made time and time again. So that is Ben Wallace's second straw man. In fact, I'll go further. It, he lied. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complete misrepresentation of history. Let's look at the third straw man here. Uh, the allegation that NATO is seeking to encircle the Russian Federation is without foundation. So we talked about the enhanced forward, we mentioned the enhanced forward pre presence in that NATO tweet a little minute ago. Uh, let's just look at it. So here we are, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. This is the enhanced forward presence. And we've got UK troops, Denmark, France, and Iceland and Estonia. We've got Germany, Belgium, Czech Republic, Iceland, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, and Lithuania. We've got Canada, Albania, Czech Republic, Iceland, Italy, Montenegro, Poland, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Spain, and Latvia. And in Poland, we've got a huge uh, United States contingent now, uh, Croatia, Romania, and the United Kingdom all right up against Russia's border, okay? But it doesn't end there because as we've been talking about over the last week or two, uh, there are efforts to get Scandinavian countries to at least pretend to be joining NATO. This, this I think, is probably more of a, a PR stunt than anything else, but it's designed- Who are these two masked bandits here? These two masked bandits, one is on the left, Ben Wallace, okay. uh, and on the right, that is the Finnish uh, president. Uh, so whose name escapes me at the moment, but they are they the, the this is putting more and more pressure on Russia intentionally, and as if that wasn't enough, uh, on Monday next week, uh, Jens Stoltenberg is away off to visit the uh, the ministers of foreign affairs in Finland and Sweden. Why is he doing that? Is he doing that just for a cup of tea, or is he doing that because he wants to build a narrative that uh, that these countries are thinking about joining uh, NATO, putting more and more pressure on Russia. Now, in order to prime then the UK uh, public on this, we have for months now had constant bombardment from the, the mainstream press on this. Fears and fighting spirit of a nation in Kremlin crosshairs Ian Burrell reports from inside Ukraine as experts warn Russian invasion is imminent, says the mail. Here's another mail. Vladimir Putin is plotting a full-scale invasion. British defense chiefs and White House warn Ukraine is facing a nightmare scenario as Russian troops mass along border and armored divisions head to Belarus. And uh, well, it got even worse, I think, uh, on Wednesday afternoon because six Russian landing ships sailed past Britain, sparking speculation they're bound for impending full-scale invasion. Uh, how many landing ships were there for uh, you know, on D-Day, for example, you know, what, what is Russia going to do with six landing ships? I don't think they're going to do very much. About as much as Britain's going to do with its aircraft carrier that well, has no planes on it. Th this is a good point. So, but my point is here that, that you know, this constant uh, bombardment of uh, the British public with these types of headlines. Yeah. And, and, I, and Ian Burrell, by the way, is one of the sort of top propagandists when it comes to international affairs. I mean, he is absolutely a safe pair of hands uh, for the mainstream media and the deep state. So yeah. one, one of the special elite few. So, you know, we, we are in a pretty dangerous uh, situation at the moment, Patrick. And, you know, if, if the mainstream press is allowed to get away with these types of headlines, and if our politicians are allowed to get away with the, the types of rhetoric that they're pushing out, like Tobias Elwood, for example, um, then I'm going to say to everybody, we haven't learned anything in the last two years. You know, we, 
this, this government, the, 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 the political establishment, the mainstream media in the last two years of COVID have demonstrated that they are not worth their breaths, you know, because they are pushing out lies constantly. And you have the, you have all the defense ministers saying, we're going to war, we're going to war, Russia's going to invade and all this sort of stuff. The foreign minister is making these great statements. And the prime minister is, is involved in uh, party gate. Okay. And there's nothing on the front page of any of the newspapers that says we're about to go to war. They seem to be, Mike, um, planning it sort of by stealth under the surface. And all of a sudden they're going to spring something on us. I mean, what exactly is going on here? It's, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. Um, now, you mentioned Partygate, so let's move off this topic now. And, um, well, we know that Boris is, is in difficulties at the moment. It's all pantomime, of course. Um, but certainly the vultures are circling in terms of replacing him as leader of the, uh, of the Tory party. Rishi Sunak, uh, Liz Truss even is in the running for it. But I wonder if there is one other person who is surreptitiously, or not surreptitiously isn't the right word, but certainly a little bit more covertly is, is aiming for the same ends. Mm. Uh, and that is Steve Baker, because he's certainly uh, pushing himself forward at the moment. And uh, so here is uh, an interview with uh, The Telegraph. Uh, if people are interested, they can, they can go and have a look at it. I'm not going to comment on what he's saying as such. I'm just uh, commenting on, on the fact that he seems to be pushing himself out there. And I wonder... I wonder what kind of prime minister he would make. He, he's, he's trying to occupy the libertarian position on a lot of issues. Definitely he's come out against lockdowns and, you know, no masking and so forth. I mean, he says he's playing by the rules, but he would like to see the rules relaxed. So he's making all the right noises to this growing constituency yes. that has just had it with COVIDian world, okay? So Baker could be an interesting candidate for leadership. Certainly he might have something to offer in terms of basic rights, mm. constitutional rights, human rights, the sort of things that have been completely stripped away over the last two years. So he could be an interesting person there. The question is, does he have the backing of the Blue, in, the Blue Rinse Brigade, the kingmakers uh, in, in, uh, up and down the country uh, for, the, for the Conservative Party? Somebody in the chat box just said David Davis. Well, actually, I think David Davis is too long in the tooth for it now. I don't think he's really interested. And mm. to be honest, I didn't think he was really a candidate anyway. But, no, but that's yeah. that's another issue. But B Baker's definitely, he, he he's definitely taking with a new found energy. He's doing loads of, you said, loads yeah. of interviews. And he's doing sort of impromptu stuff in the car. He's good on social media. So, you know, in, in terms of who's available, he might be the best choice if you had to pick somebody. If you had to pick, certainly <laughs> he's straight ahead of, of the other the other crowd. But anyway. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move back on to COVID issues. And uh, we'll start off with this from your own 21st Century Wire website, Patrick. France sports minister seeks to ban Djokovic from competing in French Open. So uh, it continues. Things are going from bad to worse, uh, possibly for the world's number one men's tennis player. And, you know, he made a very, very brave stance on principle for the Australian Open. He's not going to take the experimental gene therapy injection. Uh, and good on him for making that choice. I think most reasonable people in his position, being at the peak of his health mm. and making how much money per year, he doesn't want to risk any of that. I think that's probably a pretty sane decision. On well, we'll part. be coming on to a little bit more of that later on in the program. But So this is what the French uh, minister said. We'll take a look at her Twitter feed here. Uh, Roxana uh, Maranchenou, I think I might have pronounced that correctly, hopefully. But here's her Twitter feed. As you can see, she's all about, guess what, Mike? 
She's all about the vaccines and getting your jab and getting your little check mark there. That's your health pass, the vaccine. So this is what she said. The vaccine pass has been adopted. Uh, as soon as the law is promulgated, it will be mandatory to enter public buildings already subject to the health pass, including stadiums, theaters, and or lounge for all spectators, practitioners, French and foreign professionals. So basically she's saying, you can't do anything in France unless you get your, your health pass uh, that says that whether you're healthy or not, if you've had your experimental genetically modified spike, spike protein injections, the government says that you're healthy at that point. Yes. So, so this is what Djokovic is up against. And uh, I don't think he's gonna change his mind just to play slide on the clay at Roland Garris. I really don't think so. He's probably gonna stick to his guns. So it's, it's a big hit to take for him. At the peak of his career, was gonna break the record for most Grand Slam titles. He's probably losing you know, between five or six million just in the space of these two tournaments. Sure. So it's incredible. Now the French uh, saying the, the vaccination pass has been adopted in the UK, Boris on Wednesday saying uh, we're going back to plan A and the vaccine passport will go with it. Uh, that is a short-term decision. This is, uh, this is internal Tory party politics and comes back to Steve Baker in a sense because that, that group within the Tory party that is uh, pro-liberty um, have have won that argument in the meantime. And Wales, Wales is is really back uh, backpedaling now. They'll be out of their sort of restriction regime like in a couple of weeks, right? Right. And that's going to leave who's going to be the odd man out? Well, Scotland, of course. It's going to be Scotland and Northern Ireland. We'll get on to Northern Ireland in a, a bit later. But uh, it's a short term thing. Uh, it will be back, and uh, so we'll keep an eye on this. And everybody needs to keep an eye on it and make sure that. Uh, the, the, the campaigns don't stop because there's a sudden uh, assumption that it's it's over. It's not. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org slash community. And uh, if you're watching the program for free, we do need your financial support and uh, you're absolutely welcome to join us uh, uh, and it would be much appreciated. Please also share any material on the various platforms. Uh, and as usual, we'll just mention if you would like to support us on the shop as well, that would be much appreciated uh, too. Now, on uh, Sunday, uh, Children's Health Defence Europe uh, is holding a press conference uh, at the Press Club in Brussels. Um, there's a live stream of that at childrenshealthdefence.eu slash live stream. It will probably be live streamed on the UK column website as well and also in 21st Century Wire too. Um, and uh, well, let's see what the, what are they saying? They're saying in the framework of the Citizens Rally in Brussels, organised on the 23rd of January by the European uh, Europeans United International Children's Health Defence Europe, is pleased to invite you to uh, a meeting uh, with several speakers, including the current uh, sorry concerned by the current policy turn and the future that awaits our young generation. So uh, they've got uh, Mary Holland, Catherine Austin Fitz. Uh, Vera Sharav uh, on the first panel talk looking at the global outlook. Uh, they've got uh, uh, a second panel with talking about legal situation and what's going on with uh, legal efforts in various countries. Uh, panel three is looking at medical considerations, includes Dr. Christian Perron, uh, who we've interviewed on the on uh, UK column and, and various others. And there's a fourth panel uh, on social political landscape with a group of MEPs. And there, I think there are seven or eight panels all together. It's gonna to be an interesting event. Uh, so that starts at 10 o'clock CET. So it'll be nine UK time.
uh, and uh, you can watch that at that URL. And then on the, uh, later on, on the same day, we have uh, the One Million One Team March. Uh, this is a march for freedom and democracy and human rights. Uh, Europeansunited.eu uh, is that's going to be in Brussels as well. So that's going to be a huge. That is also going to be live streamed, I believe. Um, so uh, that's going to be an interesting event. But uh, on Saturday, then the day before this in London, uh, there is and cities across the UK. And I think there's something going on uh, locally, locally, maybe Plymouth as well. I'm not sure. Uh, Worldwide Rally for Freedom, Mass Noncompliance. Uh, details on screen at the moment. You can find the details on the Stand Up X website, for example. Uh, and uh, so we hope as many people as possible attend uh, those. Now, uh, somebody that uh, was a guest on uh, the recent COVID for Doctors, uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics, sorry, uh, symposium that we hosted uh, was this lady. Uh, and uh, the headline here from MedPage today, main physician suspended for COVID misinformation. Licensing agency says Meryl Nass must undergo neuropsych exam for her claims about COVID vaccine. Um, and so what are they saying? And this article is saying the uh, main board of licensing on Wednesday, he ordered the immediate suspension of the license of a physician accused of spreading false COVID-19 information and in a separate order on Tuesday, ordered her to undergo a neuropsychological evaluation by a board-selected psychologist. <clears throat> um, the information received by the board, this is the, uh, the quote on one of the orders, uh, the information received by the board demonstrates that Dr. Nass is or may be unable to practice medicine with reasonable skill and safety by our patients by reason of mental illness, alcohol intemperance, excessive use of drugs, narcotics, or as a result of mental or physical condition interfering with the competent practice of medicine. So that's a pretty despicable attack on someone who, uh, anytime I've heard her speak, is absolutely clear, rational, and uh, clearly knows what she's talking about. It is definitely malicious, and it's designed to defame uh, and to basically libel her as a professional, as a medical professional. The goal here is to obviously have her license stripped, right? Yes, uh, of course. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it goes on to say, NAS believes uh, that uh, that article goes on to say, NAS believes the federal government's urging that all uh, eligible individuals receive COVID vaccinations, quotes, doesn't make scientific or medical sense, and that federal officials have uh, tr been trying to justify vaccine passports to mediate your financial transactions and will identify where you are at any time, the orders go on to say. Well, we'll just make the point that uh, of course, Thomas Binder, who has also been uh, a guest on the Doctors for COVID Ethics symposiums, uh, also had to go through this. And in fact, I, I understand that he's only just out from under the, uh, the psychological evaluation regime uh, in the last month or so. Uh, and Dr. Sam White, of course, uh, also was threatened with this as well. Yeah. So, so this, but this is a, a pretty despicable direction it, it, to go in. They're going after her. She's uh, Meryl Nass is a brilliant medical investigator and her her resume is unbelievable and it goes right back 30 years yes. okay so she's worked in on the highest levels uh liaison with the u.s government u.s military worked on the uh the anthrax vaccine and uh, helping veterans who had suffered uh, adverse reactions uh from things like this and worked uh for in, le in a legal setting as well i mean she 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 knows her subject area probably as good as anybody in the world. And the fact that they're going after her says one thing. They are scared of people like this who are using their talents and their skills uh, for to, to, to help people during this time of crisis and working with people like 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and Children's Health Defense. Children's Health Defense have a fantastic team of professionals, and they're doing amazing work. The stuff that they're, they're coming up with, they're publishing, is fantastic day in and day out. And this has really, really bruised the establishment because they have incredible uh, people. So their credibility and the, the, the quality of their content is excellent. So let's put that back on screen for one second because I just want to pull another uh, little quote out of this article. It says, Nas acknowledged that she believes hydro hydroxychloroquine, uh, which has been shown to be ineffective against COVID, does in fact work. Uh, but the government requires patients to sign consent forms for its use that are designed to scare patients from using a, a safe drug that works very well for COVID by making false claims. So that was what she was saying about the government's coverage of this. But that first sentence, Nas acknowledged that she believes hydroxychloroquine, which has been shown to be ineffective against COVID, has it? Has it really been shown to be ineffective against COVID? Well, the only proper trial for, the, for that drug was the uh, re recovery trial. If you want to know about that, then get on the UK column website and have a look at this article by Ian Davis called The Hydroxychloroquine Scandal. And I just want to take a quote out of this because this, is, this was the main trial which discredited hydroxychloroquine. Uh, so here's what uh, Ian said. Firstly, the mortality rate of the hydroxy hydroxychloroquine patients in the, the recovery trial was a staggering 25.7%. Consider that 25.7% of the people in the recovery trial taking hydroxychloroquine, sorry, hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 died. Why did that happen? The article goes on. The recommended hydroxychloroquine dose for an adult in the UK is no more than 200 to 400 milligrams per day. In France, 1800 milligrams per day is considered to be a lethal poisoning. Yet across 175 UK hospitals, 1,542 patient participants in the recovery trial were given 2,400 milligrams, six times the recommended maximum dose in the first 24 hours. This was followed up by 10 days at twice the recommended maximum dose at 800 milligrams. It isn't really clear what the objective was. Uh, this wasn't so much a trial of effectiveness. It looked more like an experiment in toxic poisoning. That would seem to account for the atrocious mortality rate. And this is the point. And you had the fraudulent Lancet study on the back end of this, didn't you? Right. That they had to pull uh, from that peer-reviewed journal. So the question is, uh, was the recovery trial anything less than murder? I think there's, that is a serious question that has to be asked. It was certainly uh, discredited hydroxychloroquine uh, as a, a suitable antiviral for uh, COVID-19. And then the, then the question is, why did they do that? Well, of course, uh, one reason is that there's no profit to be made in that particular drug. Um, we then went into the, uh, the vaccination regime. Uh, we've discovered that the vaccines don't particularly work. Uh, some people would say that uh, there was plenty of evidence that they were, they were never going to work in the first place. Mm -hmm. But of course, now what we have is new antivirals coming out from Pfizer and mm -hmm. others. Yep. Uh, and those antivirals are going to be pushed as hard as they possibly can. That's right. So before you can... Uh, before you can push the profit-making antivirals, you've got to get rid of the unprofitable antivirals. And that was a very, uh, the, the recovery trial appears to have been uh, a very key aspect of doing that. And just remember, there is a trial for ivermectin running at the moment. And I'm going to be very interested to see what kind of uh, results they, that, that ivermectin receives from that trial mm. uh, and whether that trial is run in a similar way 
to the hydroxychloroquine one. And there's plenty of uh, ivermectin studies that are, are available already that have been done over the last two years, and it's been shown to be incredibly successful in what it's, they set out to do with that uh, you know, off-label, unlicensed drug, freely available, cheap. Why they went after Meryl Nass from Children's Health Defense. She was one of the first people that came out loudly and succinctly and explained that the emergency use authorization for all of these experimental vaccines uh, is put into place, and this is why they attacked hydroxychloroquine and attacked ivermectin, because if, if there was any viable early treatment available to the public, then the vaccine manufacturers would not be able to get awarded an emergency use authorization yeah. for their experimental gene jabs. She is one of the people that came out very, very clearly and illustrated that very well early on and continues to do so. So it's no coincidence that they're going after her and they're going after her on the basis of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. It's the establishment trying to gaslight the public, get them looking over here and really to, and away from what she has exposed and made available in the public domain through her excellent research and expertise. Okay, here is the Heart Group and they have published an open letter to the MHRA regarding child death data. Uh, they're saying in the subhead here, signals that COVID-19 vaccines may have caused death in children and young adults. Um, so let's just uh, take a couple of quotes. This is directed at uh, June Rain, amongst others uh, in the MHRA. So let's uh, have a look at a couple of quotes from this. We write to demand an immediate, urgent investigation to determine whether the COVID-19 vaccines are the cause of significant numbers of deaths seen recently in male children and young adults. Uh, on Thursday, the 13th of January, 2022, uh, at a hearing in the High Court in London, evidence was presented showing a significant increase in the number of young male deaths following rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines compared with the prior five-year average between 2015 and 2019. It's important to look at male deaths separately, given that uh, what is known about higher risk from uh, myocarditis in young males. Um, between uh, the 1st of May to the 24th of December 2021, uh, there were 402 registered deaths in 15 to 19-year-old males, 65 more than the 377 five-year average. By contrast, 163 uh, registered deaths in females, 12 less than the 175 five-year average. And combining those 565 deaths of males and females registered in total 53 more than expected. Uh, they say the Office for National Statistics has accepted that the increase in young male deaths is statistically significant increase. Uh, with the mortality rate falling outside the expected confidence intervals from earlier years' data. Uh, and it goes on to say, uh, on the 3rd of September 2021, the JCVI, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, said, and this is a quote, overall, the committee is of the opinion that the benefits from vaccination are marginally greater than the potential known harms, uh, but acknowledges that there is considerable uncertainty considering the magnitude of the potential harms the margin of benefit based primarily on a health perspective is considered too small to support advice on a universal program of vaccination of otherwise healthy 12 to 15 year olds. Uh, it is, uh, sorry, as longer term data on potential adverse reactions accrue, uh, greater uh, certainty may allow for a reconsideration of benefits and harms. Such data may not be available for several months or several years. That's a damning statement, <clears throat> as you can get right there uh, from a quasi governmental body, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And then so then what are they actually asking for? They're asking MHRA that each of, of you, that's the named individuals, 
uh, will investigate the increase in mortality over the period 1st of May 2021 to 24th December 2021 and beyond in young males as recorded by the ONS to determine the reason for the increase in whether causal connections to the COVID-19 vaccines can be reasonably excluded. There are other uh, demands here and I strongly recommend everybody reads the full letter uh, to get a feeling for it. Uh, it cannot be ignored, they say, that 65 deaths in young males above the normal average deaths equates to two deaths per week each week between the 1st of May and the 21st, 24th of December 2021, taking account of the estimated 38% unregistered deaths. The actual figure could be at least three per week. This, of course, is only for the 15 to 19-year-old uh, age group. Uh, in the same period, there were just two deaths registered in the same age group recorded as, quotes, involving COVID. So. 65 as opposed to uh, two uh, between, you know. So uh, I think uh, that that letter needs to be distributed uh, far and wide. And, and as shocking as that is, Mike, to say nothing about those suffering from myocarditis that have not died, but are either disabled or going through uh, that trauma as a result of the vaccine as well. Those aren't calculated in this particular uh, statistical breakdown but they do exist, and who knows what that number could be? Because many of them, Mike, are undiagnosed Yes. still today. And they'll keep popping up next year, the year after, the year after that. These numbers are growing, and they will only grow as a result of this very, very risky, and I would say reckless policy uh, by the government to push these uh, emergency use products on young people who are at zero, statistically zero risk, of ever getting seriously ill from the dreaded COVID-19. So why on earth would you introduce a new risk into their uh, risk profile? It's yeah. just unbelievable. And still no answers from the ONS, from the government, from the media, no investigation it seems into the fairly persistent uh, excess mortality since June, 2021. In the all-cause mortality statistics, uh, no explanation as to what is actually causing that excess mortality at all. Now let's just move on to another uh, clawback from the position, uh, and this time it is uh, the Czech Republic. Um, and uh, well, nonsense from the start is what they are describing COVID uh, mandatory COVID vaccination uh, as. So the, this is because the Czech Republic has a new government. Uh, the old government introduced a mandatory vax policy, and the new government has decided that that it was, as the headline says, nonsense from the start. Uh, vaccination against COVID will not be mandatory in the Czech Republic, said the new prime minister. Uh, and uh, he said that the government still sees vaccination as the most effective weapon against the virus, but will not force citizens to comply. So uh, another country uh, not quite so keen to move down this uh, draconian, totalitarian route. That's encouraging. It's a European Union country, Mike, so who knows? That's is, this, is this because of uh, potential Nuremberg uh, legal... It could be. Let's hope that it's contagious. <clears throat> yes. No pun intended. Indeed. So moving on, something very similar to what you just showed us, Mike, about the MHRA. Uh, we want to see access to data. We want to see what happened with the clinical trials. Don't we have a right to all that information? After all, um, aren't we paying for this? Well, indeed. Uh, in, in many ways, and one not just monetarily. Let's take a look at this uh, scenario right now and see what's going on here. Uh, the FDA, certainly they're involved, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca here. We're going to call this, Mike, the vaccine disaster, because how else can you describe 
what is unfolding right now. It is a disaster. This is why many in the media and politics are running for cover. Public health officials will be last to jump off their sinking ship. Don't you worry about that. But here we go. The BMJ, the British Medical Journal, pharma must uh, release all um, uh, vaccine and treatment data immediately here. This is the source, the BMJ, uh, COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. Uh, we must have the raw data now. This is Peter Doshi, yeah. one of the unsung heroes of the uh, so-called pandemic over the last two years. And this is what Doshi uh, and the BMJ have to say. This is one of the oldest, by the way, and most prestigious medical journals in the world. Big Pharma is the least trusted industry. Straight off the bat, mm -hmm. I like the sound of this because it's true. At least three of the many companies making COVID-19 vaccines have passed criminal uh, and civil settlements costing them billions of dollars. One pleaded guilty to fraud. Other companies have no pre-COVID track record, Moderna. Uh, now the COVID pandemic has minted many new pharma billionaires and vaccine manufacturers have reported tens of billions in revenue and it keeps going up. And he continues, as the global vaccine rollout continues, it cannot be justifiable or in the best interests of patients and the public, uh, we are left to just trust in the system, very good point, uh, with the distant hope that the underlying data may become available for independent scrutiny at some point in the future, says Peter Doshi. I don't think anyone can argue with that. No one's saying anyway, but he continues, 12 years ago, we called the BMJ uh, for the immediate release of raw data from clinical trials. We reiterate that call now. Data must be available when the trial results are announced, published, or used to justify regulatory decisions. There is no place for the wholesale exemptions from good practice during a pandemic. Is that last sentence, Mike, isn't that what we have just seen time and time again? Yes, oh, uh, yes, and as, as we've been talking about over the last, and we're gonna mention it again in a second, this, this uh, reduction in safety standards for clinical trials, uh, this is exactly what we're talking about, a wholesale exemption from good practice. It's its everywhere within the medical profession at the moment. Yeah, and all because of COVID, all because of the pandemic. And finally here, uh, the public has paid for the COVID-19 vaccines through vast public funding and research and mandatory purchases by governments, okay? Uh, and it is the public that takes on the balance of benefits and harms that accompany vaccinations. The public, therefore, has a right and entitlement to those data, as well as the interrogation of those data by experts. Can anyone rightly argue with that statement? Uh, let's see the mainstream press argue with it. Or just avoid it completely. Yes, indeed. And let's just, uh, just remind you about the clinical trial situations we mentioned earlier uh, in the week. Uh, last Friday, uh, the uh, MHRA here was holding a virtual conference uh, on the, what they described as good clinical practice. But actually, uh, what they were saying was the COVID-19 pandemic has necessitated flexibility in trial conduct and accelerated changes in the clinical trial landscape. In other words, uh, we've seen the clinical trials being run in parallel. We've seen the durations being shortened. We've seen double-blinded participants being unblinded and getting the, the vaccination. Uh, and therefore, there can be no long-term safety uh, uh, follow-up on these people. Uh, and then following that, uh, that virtual conference, uh, we had this uh, consultation from the MHRA entitled Proposals for Legislative Changes for Clinical Trials. Uh, one of the things they said 
was that they were aiming for clinical trials to be approved without the need for regulatory review. Uh, and I just remind everybody that there is a, a survey if anybody wants to take part in that consultation. But, uh, and thanks very much to uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics for this, but this is not just a UK thing. As we've said, it is not just a UK thing, but here's uh, some evidence for it because it's also a European uh, Medicines Agency thing. So they are doing exactly the same thing accelerating clinical trials in the EU for better clinical trials that address patients' needs? I don't think so. The only reason, way that, it, that this could address patients' needs is if uh, there is some declaration that patients need a vaccine or patients need a, uh, an antiviral or whatever it happens to be. But in Europe, uh, once again, just as in the UK, they are pushing to remove the protections uh, for, with, of, of proper clinical trials before medicines are rolling out. Uh, and why are they doing that? Well, because, uh, of course, as we mentioned on Monday's programme, uh, 100 days is what the aim is for Pandemic X. Um, 100 days from the day the World Health Organization claims that there's a pandemic has started to the point where the vaccines, the, the lockdowns and everything else, all the other measures are rolled out, a maximum of 100 days. So clinical trials, they're going to push into that. That uh, 100 day period. So, clinical trials in name only really is just the regulatory process just becomes a paper tiger. It's become a kind of a joke. Yes. Now, now if, if the pharmaceutical companies went and demanded to abolish clinical trials because they're slowing down the distribution of our wonder jabs, do you think anybody in government would stand there and, and, and stop them? Or would they just wave that through as well? Good idea. Good idea. Isn't that Bill Gates's master plan that he was barking on about in all the interviews during 2020? We need to get a vaccine for every new mutation and variant. Isn't that what Devi Srihar was saying too? We need a new vaccine when a new variant comes. We need a new vaccine. We need to keep getting those jabs into arms as each new variant comes out. I mean, these people are barking mad, Mike. They're barking mad, but guess what? The pharmaceutical industry loves it. They absolutely love it. They've never seen profits like this. This is making the military industrial complex look like a lemonade stand right now. It's unbelievable the money they're making. Mm. Okay, let's move on to new scientists then. Patrick, in COVID-19 news, most short-term vaccine symptoms down to nocebo effect. The nocebo effect. Have you ever heard of this? The nocebo effect. Only in the last couple of days. Well, I'm going to educate you now and we'll all know what this means because this is the latest talking point from the establishment to basically put off any concern about adverse reactions. It's all in your head, ladies and gentlemen. It's all in your head. Here's what they say. Most symptoms reported following the COVID-19 vaccines are likely to be caused by a nocebo effect rather than an immune response. Oh, right. So, so all the people with swelling or blotchy skin, swelling in their arms, and all the people with, with uh, blood clots and, and myocarditis, this is this is, uh, it's just in their heads. It's all in their heads. You right. know, footballers dropping dead on the pitch. It's just in their head. They're having a, a, a nocebo attack, Mike. Get with the picture here. Okay, so, and here's what they say. The team estimate that the nocebo response accounts for around 76% of adverse uh, effects and reactions reported after the first dose of the vaccine and around 52% after the, if you're lucky enough to get the second dose, 52%. So that's all nocebo right there. Okay, but that doesn't account for the 24% that they're saying aren't nocebo effect in the first dose and 48% in the second dose. So so what are they saying about that? They're not saying a whole lot. Oh. Let's look at the provenance of this, this 
so-called study here, and we go to JAMA, uh, this is the American Journal of uh, Medicine there, frequency of adverse events in placebo arms of COVID-19 vaccine trials. This is really just, a, they're calling it a systematic review and meta-analysis. So they're just basically giving comments on all these various studies and coming, drawing their own uh, conclusions here. But we're gonna basically say, I think we can safely say uh, that this is a biased study. Why? They, they know what they want to find. They know what the conclusion is. So they're cherry picking the data and arranging it because there's no control group here. Mm. There's, there's, so they're using people who've gotten vaccines and so-called placebo vaccines, and there's no control group of someone who hasn't had any treatment at all. And not only that, uh, there, there's the, if you look closely and read the fine print, it says generally people get saline injections for their placebo. It says generally, but that's not always true. Some of the vaccine trials, they replace the, uh, the active uh, ingredient with something else, and it has other uh, things in the vaccines. So how can you control for all adverse reactions for all ingredients? That's not necessarily clear either. Mm. Uh, so there's a number of things. So this is totally uh, a buckshot sort of survey uh, and review that they're doing here in terms of literature, Mike. So I, I think this is just more junk science on top of this, but the propagandists at the New Scientist absolutely love it because it warns off all those anti-vaxxers yeah. who are asking too many questions. So. Yes. yes, okay, well, let's uh, move on to topics and uh, we'll move on to 5G. And well, earlier in the week, uh, Patrick, uh, the news came from, well, the New York Times covered, but actually uh, that's the example we have. It was all over the, the media that in the United States, uh, AT&T and Verizon, who had been uh, working up for months to for their big launch of 5G, uh, had to postpone that launch in many areas uh, because of fears over uh, inf uh, interference with aircraft systems and particularly uh, radio altimeters. Now, uh, this the, the aircraft industry that's Boeing uh, in the United States, the FAA, and a whole bunch of others have been warning about this for months and months, uh, and nothing was done about it. They just plowed ahead anyway, the 5G industry. Um, and so... Uh, what they're saying is that uh, it's been postponed uh, and there are 500 towers that the FAA are saying are too close to 88 airports that could make it unsafe for aircraft to fly. Um, the airlines are concerned that it would affect uh, uh, ultimators, as I say. This is because both the 5G network and the ultimators operate uh, in similar frequencies. Um, and uh, now what they're saying is that uh, in the UK, uh, we're not using the particular uh, you know, the, the millimeter wave band yet, uh, because and I'm not clear, looking at Ofcom's site on this, it's extremely uh, messed, messed up and confused. And the, there's all kinds of documentation that doesn't give a particularly clear picture of when the tel telecommunications companies are going to roll out uh, 5G equipment running at those frequencies in the UK. So what did the mainstream press do to try to assuage fears of this? Well, they quoted British Airways and and Virgin, uh, who said, "Well, we don't we're not, we don't uh, see any problem with it," and that's of course because mm -hmm. based on the fact that these frequencies aren't being used in the UK as yet. So whether BA and Virgin are still saying, uh, are still saying these things, uh, if and when Ofcom gets to actually give permission for uh, telcos to start deploying uh, that type of equipment, I'm not sure. So we're talking about frequencies between 3.7 and 3.98 gigahertz. Uh, this is so-called C-band 5G service, um, and uh, well, hopefully. Are you a bit concerned that they hadn't uh, talked about this before they started building the masses, the masts? 
Uh, you know, certainly that's a problem. A pro, uh, you know, you'd want to troubleshoot that in advance, wouldn't you? No, this is short-termist thinking, Patrick, because right. because uh, you know what 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 the Green New Deal and uh, the Great Reset says is you won't fly. Ah. So we don't need to worry about it on a medium-term or long-term basis. So the telcos can roll out their infrastructure uh, in the full knowledge that in the not too distant future, you know, we won't be flying anyway, and it's not going to be a problem. And we can always flag it up if there's a few uh, uh, airline crashes. Then you know we'll, we'll well they'll just blame it on Boeing. We'll bring it to the top of the priority list. Just let's wait and see what happens first. Let's just test it out on the population. Yes, this is a reoccurring theme that we're seeing. Okay, just uh, very briefly on this one. Then Art Forum here. This is from Ireland, uh, saying Ireland to launch universal basic income for artists. Well, first of all, uh, anybody that uh, has got any brain in their head will realize that if it's for only for artists, then it's not a universal basic income, is it? Because it's not universal. It's only for artists, and what they're basically saying is that they're going to they're going to subsidise artists to do their art uh, through a kind of benefit. This is not new. This has been going on in France for a very long time. The French uh, social security system absolutely supports artists and has done for many times. And if you if you're, for example, if you've got a little band, a little group going for for playing music, you can get your benefits from the the French government, and in return, you're required to do X number of performances per month. And in France, get your vaccines. Uh, yes, well, that's increasingly the case. If you're, but, an, if you're a musician, but, you have to get vaxxed. So this is not really, uh, this article, is uh, this scheme in Ireland is not really universal basic income. It might be uh, used as a, as a justification for it in the future, perhaps. Uh, it's a good strategy to get all the artists and musicians all vaxxed up. I think it's a great strategy. Uh, good job, guys. Um, Okay, now let's have a look at this organization, NOYB. Uh, none of your business. Uh, this is a pressure group in the EU. Uh, and well, they've had a bit of success. I mean, they've been uh, working on this for a couple of years, uh, lots of legal activity. They've had some success <clears throat> and, uh, in Austria to begin with. And basically, the, uh, the outcome is that, the, that Google Analytics, which is the major tracking platform on the internet, let's, let's face it, uh, is illegal and uh, goes against uh, GDPR. Uh, and this is mainly because the data from uh, people's websites, uh, websites based in Europe, is ending up on United States servers. And the concern is that United States intelligence agencies, therefore, have access to it. Um, so, uh, so Austrian group NYOB, none of your business, they had filed quite a number of complaints in the EU over during the course of 2020. Uh, and then uh, last week, uh, they claimed their first victory uh, on this one, but they've also had other successes because uh, in fact, the European authorities sanctioned even the European Parliament for illegal EU-US data transfers amongst other violations. Uh, and that was, uh, I believe in November or December last year. Um, so uh, the, the, the organization or the website at the, at the center of this uh, was this one net doctor um, and this uh, they got drawn into the whole uh, argument <clears throat> so basically you know of course you 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 look at the net doctor website in austria and you get uh, google analytics cookies and that's being used to identify you and track you across the internet um, and uh, so they have found themselves at the center of it uh, google themselves uh, released a blog post a couple of days ago saying well, really, it's not that bad, and but it's it is time for a new EU-US data transfer framework because we can't really keep going this way. And it's not clear whether Google is going to be sanctioned by the EU uh, for this, <clears throat> but uh, it, I think it's time they were. 
No, definitely, this is a murky area, however. Um, so the, the, the double-edged sword on this, Mike, is yes. also uh, giving the, the EU or giving government even more power uh, to regulate various aspects of the Internet. I'm sure they wouldn't do that, though, would they? They would pull back. Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but sticking with Google. Sure, Google. Let's take a look. If you, if you looked at your homepage, I think this should start automatically. Yeah. But, yeah, if you look at your homepage yesterday on Google, I don't know if it's up today, this is what you see, Mike, and uh, this is great. This is Google here. What are they promoting? These cartoon characters, jabs and masks. You can see there, and when you get your jab, uh, it sort of you'll, you'll see the the Gumby one. I think the green one will flex. Yeah, the G there, flexing. So jabs, uh, mRNA injections are fun, and they also make you strong as well. So Google's running this twenty four seven. This is the most hit website in the world on the internet. And this is the propaganda that they've been pushing. So just as the narrative is collapsing and you know they're sort of backpedaling on the COVIDian uh, sacred sort of commandments, then Google's running these really aggressive propaganda campaigns. Yes. So is this just gonna go on forever? I don't know. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty, pretty spectacular propaganda. And uh, and so over last weekend, uh, I was in Northern Ireland, okay. and I attended a couple of uh, uh, events there in Belfast uh, in Derry. We'll just take a look uh, at that. It was a very uh, uh, incredible weekend. Um, the, the crowds came out at Belfast City Hall. It was a pro-freedom rally, had a great lineup of speakers, and uh, there's a lot of great uh, activists there. And so really, really highly charged, passionate crowd, fantastic uh, folks there. Uh, in Belfast as well. This was uh, in front of Belfast City Hall on uh, January 15th, last Saturday. I also spoke uh, in that as well with the other speakers here. And this is in Derry, that's Dr. Ann McCloskey there speaking to a crowd in Derry. They had a very good turnout there as well, probably one of the biggest they've had since lockdowns on this. So this was uh, in front of the Guild Hall uh, there just uh, downtown. So really encouraging. Uh, and uh, Greg Sharkey, who did Imperialism on, on Trial, he uh, was sort of one of the organizers that helped with uh, both of these, or helped me as well to uh, speak at both of these events as well. And also the Sunday Wire, um, we did uh, our podcast uh, as well. I got a repeat here of some slides. I'm not sure what uh, what the yeah. There you go. Yeah. So this is Dolores Cahill here. Uh, we did the Sunday Wire live uh, in Derry. And there's, uh, there's Dolores, and also we had Dr. Ann McCloskey, there's Greg Sharkey as well, also uh, uh, David uh, McCollum as well. He's a naturopath uh, based in Northern Ireland, was a guest. We had kind of a studio audience, so it was a really fantastic, uh, successful weekend. It's always fun to do uh, those types of podcasts with a few people uh, in the room, isn't it? It's great, it's great. And they were, they're sort of interacting with the crowd and yeah. they're really into it. We, we, we've done this in the past, um, at different times, so it is really special when you can arrange that. Yeah, is is really great and uh, wonderful people, of course, in Derry, and we uh, we thank everybody for their hospitality as well. And um, I, I have a clip here uh, w during my uh, talk in Belfast. Uh, I sort of uh, talked about that uh, that sort of old canard, the uh, asymptomatic spreader. So, uh, and uh, I think we uh, I think the crowd understood uh, what I was talking about for sure. Let's just play that video clip. This is from Belfast City Hall last Saturday. And the big lie 
the, the, the mother of all lies, the asymptomatic spreader. The asymptomatic, never seen before in the history of respiratory diseases or diseases full stop. The asymptomatic spreader that turned everybody into potential lepers. <laughs> so, the, everything was based on this myth of the asymptomatic spreader, and they're all backtracking on it right now. They're all running for cover. The rats are jumping ship. The asymptomatic spreader was used to justify lockdowns, social distancing, masks, school closures, business closures, mandatory vaccines, vaccine passports, and the list goes on. Every crazy medieval policy is based on this myth of an asymptomatic spreader. That's the real science. So one by one, the science is crumbling, isn't yes. it? The science is crumbling. PCRs, that's falling by the wayside. The asymptomatic spreader, the COVID deaths, the attribution of death by COVID-19, all of these things are just falling apart. Yeah, and we, you know, even in the in the, the technical reports and the surveillance reports on COVID-19, we have uh, caveats appearing now in the last uh, number of issues uh, where they're saying, of course, we we aren't entirely certain you know, who died with COVID or who died as a direct result of COVID. So that applies to all the, you know, the headline number that the of 150,000 that the mainstream press keeps bullying us with, that number has to be challenged, heavily challenged at this point. I remember sitting here, Mike, talking about with you about that very issue when the when the pandemic was raging in Northern Italy. Do you remember that? I think that would have been about April or May 2020. April 2020. Yeah. So they're finally catching up. Finally catching up, yeah. Well, good on them, good, good on them. Uh, and we'll end with uh, with this. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, what's he up to? Sherlock Holmes here. This is a great mem. Uh, shout out to Ian Jenkins on Facebook uh, for this little ditty here. This is Sherlock Holmes talking to his uh, trusted sidekick, uh, Moriarty. And Sherlock Holmes says here, uh, the master criminal made one fatal error. Uh, they committed their plans to print in a range of books, academic papers, conference proceedings, and highly detailed and publicly available governance agendas, to which Moriarty uh, replied to Sherlock Holmes saying, conspiracy theorist. Yeah. So yeah. there it is. That says it all. Okay. Well, look, that's all we have for you today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, we hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.